Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Adam Rifkin, a writer, director, and producer with numerous film credits to his name, including Mouse Hunt, Small Soldiers, Welcome to Hollywood, and the newly released The Last Movie Star starring Burt Reynolds. In our episode, we talk about Adam's early beginnings as a filmmaker in Los Angeles, how getting fired off a project led him to write and sell his screenplay for Mouse Hunt, and the emotional and creative experience that was writing and shooting the last movie star as a love letter to his childhood hero, Burt Reynolds. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Adam, uh, thank you so much for joining us, and we're here to talk about your latest film, which is The Last Movie Star, which opens this weekend. But I wanted to take a moment first to discuss how uh, you got to this point in your career so that listeners may familiarize with your incredible story. Um, I was reading that you moved to Los Angeles when you were 17. Right. And uh, without any hesitation, you just started writing screenplays and started banging on doors. And eventually you got to make your first feature film in 89, and you were like 18 or or 20. Yeah. And that film was uh, Never on Tuesday. And, and because we're recording this in a film school full of young and ambitious filmmakers, I was wondering how you feel experiencing any kind of success or disappointment at such a young age helped shape you as a filmmaker. And in what ways do you feel like early projects proved your perception of the business to be right or wrong? And what did leading a movie set teach you about your creative process? Okay, well, let me back up and start at the beginning which is that I loved movies ever since I was a real little kid. I'm from Chicago, I think you mentioned that. And I knew when I was about five years old that I wanted to make movies. I didn't know what a director was, I didn't know what a producer was or a writer was, but I knew that movies got made in a land called Hollywood, and one day I was gonna go there and make films. And around that same time, five, six years old, I commandeered the home movie camera, and I started making movies with my friends and my sister. Uh, just because I loved doing it. I remember specifically my first movie was called The Lady Giant. It starred my little sister. So if I was five or six, she was three or four. And I built a little city out of model, uh, an erector set of model buildings and matchbox cars. And the whole plot was going to be just, she was just going to stomp on the buildings. But I remember getting into a fight with my mother because it was cold out and my mother made my sister wear a jacket. And I remember being so upset because giants don't wear jackets. And that was my first fight with the studio. My mother was the studio. I was the out-of-control director. Anyway, the studio won, as usual. My sister had to wear a jacket. The monster had to wear the jacket. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. But anyway, so I made movies my whole youth, uh, always with the idea that I was going to move to Los Angeles and pursue it uh, for real. And when I got out to Los Angeles, I was about 17, and I figured out pretty early on that the only difference between making a movie and not making a movie is having the money to make a movie. I mean, there's no magic beyond that. And in those days, making a movie was a lot more expensive, even a small movie, than it is today. Today, you can make a movie for, for zero money. If you have a cell phone, you can shoot a movie on a cell phone, you can edit it on an app, you can release it to the world on YouTube, you can promote it to the world on social media, you can do that for free. And if you take it seriously enough, and you make a good enough film, it can change your life. But when I was starting, that was not an option. You had to shoot a movie on film. There was only one option, film. Uh, So I 
wrote scripts and knocked on doors, and I got very lucky. I met um, a couple young producers who were working for an old-time producer who was cranking out low-budget product, and we convinced him to let me write and direct a movie and then produce a movie for him. And that was never on Tuesday. And that was my first opportunity getting to direct a film. And even though it was a low-budget film, we had a great cast. The stars were Peter Berg, who's now a big director, Claudia Christian, who's a successful actress, and Andy Lauer, who is now a documentary filmmaker. And the supporting cast, though, were cameos by famous people. Uh, Nicolas Cage was in it. Charlie Sheen was in it. Emilio Estevez, Judd Nelson. A lot of the Brat Pack was huge then. There was a group of actors called the Brat Pack, and the producers were friends with them. So they convinced them to be in the movie. So for my first movie, I got them all in the movie. And uh, it was a great experience. That was my first, that movie, making that movie was really my proper film school. Uh, but making all those movies as a little kid, I didn't realize it at the time, but they taught me the principles of filmmaking by, just by doing it. They taught me how to visually tell a story uh, and how to shoot pieces of a scene and how to put them together in post-production. And, and, and you know, that and watching a million movies growing up. And so I, I still apply those same principles today to the movies that I make. But some of, the, some of the lessons that I learned on that first movie, I also remember always to this day on every movie that I make. Um, somebody said to me on the first day before the first shot, I think it was the DP, he said to me, when you're directing a movie, you're going to be assaulted with a million questions a day, all day. Do you want the toothbrush to be green or yellow? Do you want the car to be a VW or a Porsche? Do you want the hat to be a derby or a knit cap? And you, it's your job to say yes or no. And once you say yes, if you don't like it down the line, it's your fault. So be mindful when you say yes and when you say no, because the job of the director is making those choices. You know, some people don't know what a director does. You know, they just call action and cut. Well, that's not the case. They choose, they hire who the cinematographer is. It's their choice who the cinematographer is. It's their choice who the cast are. It's their choice that the toothbrush is red. It's their choice that the hat is a knit cap. And a movie is the sum of all of those choices. So if more of those choices are the right choices, hopefully the movie turns out pretty well. And if more of those choices are the wrong choices, the movie's probably not going to be so good. Um, yeah. It, it can, it's probably like the worst thing that director could do is be indecisive. You, know? you have to be decisive even if even if you don't know what the answer, the best answer is, it's more important to, to trust your instincts and your intuition and, and make a choice because time is money and everybody's relying on you to have the vision and to have the confidence to, to lead the, the charge. So if you're the type of personality that is indecisive, maybe directing is not for you because the whole job is decision-making. Yeah, it is decision-making. We talk about the elements of filmmaking, but not many people know that you have very rich background as a writer as well because from that movie, I read that you know came an opportunity for Fox to write what it would have been a reboot for Planet of the Apes, and this is before uh, 2001's uh, Tim Burton version. That's right. 
Um, but you then went on to write Mouse Hunt and Small Soldiers and many other films. So I wanted to ask you about the concept of keeping prolific because you have been keeping very busy as a writer, producer, director uh, ever since. The variety of projects you worked on and, and what do these early screenwriting experiences uh, teach you about recognize the element of a good story? Well, I'll say this. Um, for me... And obviously, the great thing about pursuing a career in movies or the arts in general is that there is no one way to pursue it. I mean, it's, it's as many ways as there are people pursuing it. So there's no wrong way to pursue it, whatever works for you. But what worked best for me, I wanted to be a director first, but I needed something to direct. And I didn't feel that anybody was ever going to let me direct something unless I had written it and they wanted it so badly that the only way I'd get to direct is if I said, if you want that script, I have to direct it. So, and I'm also a pretty fast writer. Um, and I also like writing, and I also want to tell a lot of stories. So I, from the very beginning, was always writing a lot of scripts. Small scripts, big scripts, funny scripts, scary scripts, all different kinds of stories. With the idea that some of them I'm going to try and sell, some of them I'm going to try and make, some of them are just never going to go anywhere. But if I just keep writing... I can continue to create opportunities for myself because nobody is going to just find you and hand you a job making a movie. You have to create the opportunity for yourself. So my way in was through writing, and it still is. Anytime I'm in a hole, the only way I get out of that hole is by writing my way out, creating a new opportunity that didn't exist until I created it from scratch. So you mentioned Mouse Hunt, for example. So the way that project came about, I had been hired to direct a movie called Barb Wire, which starred Pamela Anderson. Um, and it was not a job I was passionate about, but I took the job because I felt it was the next necessary step in my evolution as a filmmaker. I had made a bunch of independent films. This would have been my next, this would have been a bigger movie than I ever had a chance to make. But I got caught in a battle between the comic book company Dark Horse and the finance company, Polygram Propaganda. Uh, Dark Horse hired me. Polygram had a stable of music video and commercial directors that they wanted to hire a director from. Uh, and as soon as I got hired, I got fired. Um, so all the people who congratulated me when it said on the front page of the trades, Adam Rifkin is hired to direct Barbed Wire, are the same people who refused to call me back when it said on the front page of the trades, Rifkin uh, departs barbed wire due to creative differences. Everybody knows what creative differences mean. It means you're fired, right? So I looked around at the landscape and I thought to myself, what power do I have in this business now that I'm n nowhere? I'm a fired, humiliated filmmaker. I said to myself, every studio, every producer, every executive, every director, every they're all looking for material a script, an article, uh, a reboot of a TV show, whatever they, wherever they can find material that they think would be successful, that's what they're looking for. I could create material from nothing because I'm a writer. So I'm going to write myself an opportunity. So I just went on a writing tear. And I wrote, while they were still shooting, I wrote four different scripts. And the first three didn't sell. But Mouse Hunt, which I thought was the dumbest idea I had, and I wrote the quickest, I wrote it in about a week, that's the one that happened to sell, and it, and it was bought by Steven Spielberg, and it was made by DreamWorks, and it changed my life completely, um, and it never would have happened if I didn't – if I wallowed in my own self-pity after I got fired, that 
opportunity would have never existed. But I am determined to not let rejection or failure blip on my radar. I just need to keep moving forward like a Terminator. I'm just, I can't stop myself. So I just create opportunities and hope that by sheer volume of uh, material, one of them will click. And, and I've been lucky in that regard so far. Which brings us to tonight's film, because that's exactly what happened. You created your own opportunity. So tonight's film, The Last Movie Star, which I think we can describe as a story about, as you described it, uh, faded glory uh, and perhaps what it means to struggle with the idea of, of legacy as you're growing old. And Burt Reynolds plays an actor named Vic Edwards. Um, and I think we can find more than a few parallels between, you know, the character and the actor. People should understand that not only you wrote this movie with Reynolds in mind, but that you said that you would not make it unless he agreed to star in it, which I think is, is fantastic because it speaks to the level of meaning this project has for the both of you. So you wrote this screenplay as a spec, which means for people listening that you wrote it on your own time without any compensation and without certainty that he would ever agree to do it. So why did you think that now was the right time to do it and try and, and get it made? Well, like you said, I mean, I wrote it specifically for Burt Reynolds because Burt Reynolds was my hero when I was a kid. I grew up loving his movies and also just loving his persona. I just thought he was the funniest guy. When I was growing up, he was the biggest movie star in the world. Uh, and I just thought it would be just the neatest thing to be his friend. I mean, that was the 10-year-old me, 12-year-old me, you know, imagining what it would be like to hang out with Burt Reynolds. Anyway, as the years went on and I started making movies of my own, I wanted to give something back to Burt for all the years of joy he had given me and so many others. So I decided I was going to roll the dice and I was just going to write this script for him on spec because it was worth the risk to me. Burt Reynolds meant so much to me when I was growing up. I had such a just a, a fondness for him. And I knew that other people had a tremendous amount of goodwill for him as well. And also, the reason I wanted to do it now is because Bert's not getting any younger. And I wanted Bert to be able to have this role, sink his teeth into this role, when he still was able to do it. So I wrote the script about an old man who used to be a movie star who now has to face the fact that his glory days are behind him, like you said. And I submitted it to his manager, and I said to the manager, tell Bert that if he doesn't want to play the part, I'm not making the film. And I meant that. And because the movie is so similar in many ways to his real life, I mean, it's obvious somebody, if, you know, there are other actors in the same age range as Bert Reynolds, but nobody could play those scenes like Bert because those are reflections of his real life. So he said to me, I'll send the script to Bert, but I can't promise you what he'll say. I mean, Bert does what he wants to do. He sent it to Bert. And the next day, I get a call from Burt Reynolds, much to my shock. And I recognized his voice immediately, and I became starstruck instantly. And he said to me that um, the script deals with things that are hard for him to face. And he said that you know he'd have to dig really deep to be able to pull this off. And as he's talking, I'm thinking to myself, well, he's probably going to pass. But how cool is it that he called me to pass personally? I'm actually getting to talk to Burt Reynolds personally. I thought, you know, it's worth having written it just to have this phone conversation, you know. And as I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe I'm talking to Burt Reynolds and, and he actually was cool enough to call. I almost missed him saying, I I'm going to do the movie. I almost missed it. But then suddenly I, I, I said, wait, 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 what? He said, if you had sent me this script 10 years earlier, 
I wouldn't have been able to do it. I wouldn't have been able to face it. But he said, at this point in my life, I have to play it. And he said, I'm in. And I was uh, in shock, I mean, to say the least. And I naively thought, oh, great, we've got Burt Reynolds. We're going to get the money immediately to, to shoot this movie. Uh, I thought, you know, you'd think I'd be a little more cynical by this point. But I thought, you know what? Uh, there's going to be a bidding war for this movie. Burt Reynolds in this role at this stage of his life, who's going to say no? It took eight years to finally get the money to make the movie. But it was worth the wait because it got made the right way at the right time with the right people. I agree. Um, I was wondering if we could talk about the production process of actually shooting the movie. You filmed in May of 2016. Uh, that's when he started in Tennessee. And I was wondering if you could talk as the writer, director, and producer of the film, how you were managing the weeks of filming uh, with the crew and how did your perception of Burt change from the first to the last day of shooting? Well, like I said, when I was a kid, Burt Reynolds was my hero. And there's a saying, you should never meet your idols because you'll inevitably be disappointed. But as corny as it may sound, whoever said that never met Burt Reynolds because he is truly as cool a guy as I always dreamed he would be when I was a kid. So my perception of Burt only got warmer and I only grew closer to him as, as we made the movie. You know, making a movie is a very intense process. And people either grow really close to one another or they can't stand each other by the end of the process. Uh, Bert and I became very close friends, which is amazing to me that I can even say that. But he is the hardest working guy. Uh, he, you know, he's obviously been through this a million times, not only as a movie star, but also he's directed a lot of movies too. So he knows the process. And he's very mindful of the process as an actor, but also as a filmmaker, as a producer himself. And he knew that we were making this movie on a budget, and he worked harder than anybody. He was always the first one there. He was always happy to be the last one to leave. I learned a lot from him, uh, and he leads by example, you know, just by being so generous. And I was also worried, how would I direct Bert? He's an icon, right? I had to take my fanboy hat off, for one. I couldn't just be constantly, you know, saying how great he was all day long. I had to actually direct him, and would he be open to that? And he said to me right off the bat, he said, look, I need you as much as you need me. We're going to make this movie together. If I'm not giving you what you want, I want you to kick my ass. And if you're not giving me what I want, I'm going to kick your ass. So be prepared for that. And he said, we're collaborators. And he was 100% true to his word on that. And we really, once he said that, I mean, it, it, it took away all my nerves about how I would approach directing him. And we really just dug in and And it was a really productive director-actor relationship. Very creative. I think it really did pay off. Because, you know, the, the word, you know, as we just come out of the screening and I was trying to process the film, I think the term that came to mind for me was like, it feels emotionally truthful. Thank you. You know, so that's from the writing to the directing to everything. Thank you. Um, let me wrap things up by asking you to jump back in time with me. Okay. Uh, if we could give 17-year-old Adam Rifkin, who just moved to Hollywood, one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? What would be the piece of advice that I would give my 17-year-old self? That's a good question. I would say I would tell myself that when things go wrong, that is usually when you have to regather your thoughts and go in a different direction that you didn't anticipate, and as a result, better things happen. 
I would, and I learned that lesson many times. You know, things I like, like with Mouse Hunt. I got fired from Barbed Wire, and because of that, I, the Mouse Hunt opportunity was created, and it changed my life for the better. That's one example of many situations like that. So I would say, I would tell myself to be prepared that don't be bummed out when things go wrong or things don't go the way you're planning them to go, because the way that things will evolve will possibly, more often than not, go in a better direction than you even imagined the first time. Adam, you've been incredibly generous with your time and I cannot thank you enough. Uh, the last movie saw opens in day and date, release starting today, meaning you can catch it in theaters uh, around the country, LA and New York, and then other cities very soon, but also on DVD, Blu-ray, streaming services on demand. Uh, it's a great chance to support, I think, independent filmmaking in general, and I really do hope people will take a chance to check it on the big screen as we did. Adam, thank you again. Thank you very much. And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Adam for being so generous with his time and chatting with us as we recorded this episode in a room at USC's School of Cinematic Arts. Thanks again. Okay, okay, we're coming right out, coming right out. Thanks again, and stay tuned for our next episode with Oscar-winning sound mixer Kevin O'Connell. I'm Brando Benetton, and you have been listening to Soundstage Access. <laughs> <laughs>